Live from Gutter Cat Studios in the Metaverse, it's time for another episode of the Crazy About Crypto Show. And now here's your host, Crazy Carl. Hey yo, what is going on? This room is already popping. Thanks for being here. And if you're listening to the podcast, hello from all around the world. And welcome to the Crazy About Crypto Show, an interactive live podcast on Twitter spaces for anyone exploring crypto and wanting to learn from others that have already dived into the space. From NFT artists to savvy crypto investors to everyday people just like you and I, this is a place where we can come together and learn about this new wave of innovation. Today's guest is an OG in the crypto industry and has seen the space evolve since its very early days. Using his studies from the prestige business school at UNC at Chapel Hill, he applied his financial understandings to the crypto market since 2010, before Ethereum was even born. He has since helped over 1,800 subscribers in his Telegram group, Scruffer Calls, understand his inner thinking by providing his market calls for free, and has worked with numerous crypto startups as an advisor, with his most recent and public involvement being an advisor for the GM coin developers and team. It's my honor to share the stage with the one and only Max Scruffer. What is going on, Max? Dude, thank you so much. Uh, appreciate the uh, enthusiastic intro here. I'm happy to be here and happy to you know talk through some of this stuff. I don't think this is going to be first actual interview talking through from my uh, my start of 2010 till now yeah and we actually already i mean i introduced you and i wasn't even aware when before i had wrote the introduction that when in 2010 when you first started you were actually in high school and so i think it's a i think we were talking a little bit about this pre-show but i think it is fascinating that this world that we're seeing now with ethereum and smart contracts is allowing so many young kids to be able to basically enter this world where the the there's the sky's the limit with the blockchain and they don't have to necessarily operate like we did growing up because uh if they find an ecosystem in a community that values them they can build amazing things and you actually it's cool because back in 2010 it was much harder to do this but you actually did do it as a young kid and you got involved in the crypto sphere and the the crypto um ecosystem and so i'd love for you to throw it back and talk about just your journey entering the crypto space back in the early days yeah and i know this will be kind of a repeat for some of you who are in here early but um i'll try and make it short and sweet as the intro and kind of moving to stuff nobody's heard so in 2010 um kind of a recap i was 14 years old going into high school no real knowledge of finance or anything in particular other than a, a peak curiosity making money and doing so in, in ways outside of working um well you know working for somebody but rather working for myself and i was a, an active participant on a forum site called hack forms uh and bitcoin was kind of becoming popular on there as a way to do anonymous transactions post 2008 um and you know it was it kind of used outside of the purpose of what bitcoin was in some senses um but Besides that point, I found an opportunity given the mass volume that was being used and the uh, the kind of the big problem that were, people were facing was actually having access to Bitcoin. There was no Coinbase or really centralized exchanges people could trust. It was kind of sketchy websites that were charging you 10 to 20 percent to get Bitcoin from them. As um, back then, as mining was happening, the supply was much more scarce than it is now, and you didn't have public access as you do in the current days. 
So what I found was an opportunity to do some over-the-counter trades and purchase from people in bulk. Got a ton of Bitcoin myself at a cheap rate, as much as I really could afford at 14. And I used this to do intermediary transactions as a trusted escrow. So I was charging 5% on the form site, get building my reputation up with each transaction and became a bigger provider for people who wanted to access Bitcoin but needed to get it from someone they could trust. So I was doing PayPal to Bitcoin transactions back and forth, 5% each way, um, and then continually to put more back into Bitcoin so I could continue doing higher volume transactions Unfortunately, it wasn't really as an investment thesis back then. Being 14, it was kind of just more like this is high volume. I can make quick, easy money off this and I can build a reputation. So I never really held on to it after I kind of separated away from back then. And my periodic involvement with crypto kind of went back and forth as the years uh, progressed. You know, kind of the, the regret you feel when Bitcoin pumps really heavily later on <laughs> being a 14-year-old and be like, wow, I had thousands of Bitcoin. What did I do? <laughs> but <laughs> nonetheless, um, I mean, I can get in. Do you want me to start getting into like what the transcendence went into 2016? Yeah, or, uh, yeah. I would love for you to talk about Okay, So you're kind of from when you began and you were familiar with the tech to kind of building the conviction that, wow, this is like, like you said, like looking back and being like, uh, oh, wow, I like I should have been holding on to this. When did you kind of change and uh, like get that conviction moment about um, cryptocurrency? Yeah, so it actually didn't happen until 2016. I was pretty involved in 2013 kind of watching things, but I still had the preconceived notion that everything was kind of a scam. And you didn't really have that full idea of the tack of what it really was. You just saw prices pumping and, you know, a bunch of negative articles. And being being a high schooler easily influenced by the media back then, it was kind of just like, you know, why is this scam still pumping? <laughs> but uh, that quickly switched actually back in 2016 when Ethereum launched. I was not a super early investor. I got in maybe at $50 um, back when first 2017 started in the pumpage. But what really, you know, the, the price is pumping kind of influenced me to look into it more. And then I started understanding this was 2016. I believe I was 20 years old at this point. Um, yeah, 20 years old. And I started to understand you know this is this can actually be implemented into traditional enterprise and can be used by people and businesses and can be used all around the world in more of a sense than just a currency i still am not a firm believer and sorry if you're you're a huge bitcoin maxi here i'm still i'm not really a huge believer that we're going to have some decentralized autonomous currency that replaces uh, the, the current medium of centralization of currency i just i don't think the powers above let that happen however my, my conviction is really in how we can use these new smart contracts and technological innovations in current enterprise and how this can be implemented into our systems and slowly evolve from what it is today. And that's where my research started in 2016. Um, 2017, I started investing heavily as much as I really could as a 20-year-old with, without like a lot of job experience, a limited income. I was pretty much almost all in crypto besides the money that I could afford to to live off of um, mm -hmm. luckily being younger age you do have a lot you can take on a much higher risk threshold especially because you know I, i've thought of it as like worst case i lose my money and i'm still living with my parents like you know that's much better than having children and a family that you have to you have to hold on to so i, I was able to take the huge risk and you know, in 2017, it was mostly just my studies into Ethereum. It was, and then we started getting to the uh, the Link ICO. I think that's what really pulled me into what crypto could be. 
as smart contracts back then, you did have the, uh, you know, it's executing based on monetary transactions. And then you have this, this idea of what data can provide. And 2017, I actually put everything really I, I could from Ethereum into Chainlink right off the ICO at a price of about 0.15 was a low. I think I averaged about 0.15 to 0.20. And, you know, I was playing around with some of the cash grabs back in 2017. You had John McAfee just tweeting coins of the day that would pump miraculously after each one. It was it was a pretty crazy time back then. You know, relatable to now, but honestly, I would say it's almost, it was pretty much even crazier then. You had, like, for those who were around in 2017, you had, like, Ether Delta, which was an exchange, and then you had... Um, you had Binance basically. That's most of the time, most of what you're looking at. Binance was like, you know, Binance in the early days was a whole different, a whole different story because they weren't worried about the regulations back then. It was like the wild west, uh, on that exchange. Yeah. yeah. So like back then, you know, when you're outside of like my research and just looking at like what the market can provide as volume and, and, and pumpage wise, like it's, it, you basically found a project, it would get listed on Ether Delta right away. And you're basically, you know, it, it's similar to now with the decentralized exchanges. You're basically, um, front running the Binance listing before and once you got on Binance that's when the real volume would come in so big one that I got in really early was you know outside of Chainlink was was Lend which is previous when now Aave which everyone knows um, and I was buying that on Ether Delta <laughs> based on like the conviction of what Lend could be and then you front run Binance Binance it would pump like 50x so you know similar to what it is now except I just think it's a little bit crazier um, but yeah, so going back to like outside of what the price pumping is, that's what started spark my research was Chainlink, and I did three years of just in-depth research, combining what I learned in university with economics and financial literature, and how utility models could really be built around these tokens. Um, how do we separate them from what a security is? Since you're not investing and have decision-making uh, powers back then, there was no governance. It was mostly just utility models. So what? So what? What was your real real stake? Is you're not really investing in the company. You're investing in a speculative aspect of what the utility could provide. So I wanted to write about how the economics suited with that, and how later on, once the utility started to spark from a higher volume and implementation, in, implementation. Sorry, in a in a uh, application of enterprise usage, and what happens later on. How could the value be derived from that? So. That's that's what my investment thesis was back then. I got kind of pushed into the rabbit hole of what things could be, and you know that led to 2020, which is now. I'll take a I'll take a brief breather. If you have any questions, from that was a lot of information. I know I kind of rambled. No, I mean <laughs> I think uh, it is fascinating hearing your story because part of it reminds me of my own journey into the space. Except you seem to uh, when you were investing, and I don't know if you went through these uh, trials and tribulations while you were investing as well, but. You know, when you first start getting into the space, whether it was in DeFi or whether it was before that in the ICO craze or whether it's now in the NFT craze, we go through like these these sectors of the how the space has been evolving, which is great because it is uh, always pioneered by innovation. But then there's always these pain points in growth where true innovation is happening, but at the same time, there's a bunch of other uh, shit that's just like coming uh, and people are trying to cash grab, like you said, or people are trying to make a quick buck because they see the opportunity. So then there is this point where you're having to try to determine what is 
going to be uh, like a like a valuable asset that will make it long term and actually like actually can hold value versus something that is just going to like you're in it for a few minutes or a few days to make a quick profit and leave. And that's just a whole different scenario. And one thing that I felt like back in the ICO days, which you were talking about when all of these coins were being listed and all of these promises were happening. I mean, you named two coins already, which is Lend or Ave and Chainlink, which are still around and pertinent to today. Binance was also born during that 2000, late 2017, early 2018 craze, and it's around. But there were all, there were hundreds of coins that now have dissipated because they the the basically the developers are no longer around. And so I just love hearing kind of your thesis and that your your studies of what you wanted to invest in based on the utility and what the product project actually had because I think a lot of times uh, people will speculate so much in any market and you still see it today in the NFT markets um, that people end up getting burned and it really hurts because then there's a whole there's like this whole onboarding process but then because people um, are losing so much money because they don't take the time to do that research and they're FOMOing and they um, this may be their first time investing we see a lot of people leave the market it too through each one of these phases. And so I'd love for you to talk about kind of what you've seen in the evolution of each of these phases and um, how what what you feel like has always been the best strategy uh, to to keep that conviction and not necessarily, you know, play the short game, but think more about the long game, which it seems like you've you've definitely thought about in terms of which which investments and long term investments you wanted to hold. Yeah. So I think, speaking of that, it was a little bit easier to do that in 2017. I think the availability back then and the money flow, it was honestly the better strategy besides chasing what, you know, the pump and dumps was really having conviction in an asset class of what could really be built. So back then, I didn't really think of it as like chase and grab. It was more like, you know, where, how do I build a thesis around conviction and how do I make sure I'm holding this for the next five to 10 years? And that's kind of where Chainlink came in. Um, I was in a few chats and a lot of it, you know, a lot of conviction comes out of networking. I was in a private chat with someone known as the bid advisor who I actually know very personally. And he got me into, you know, the, the conviction aspect of holding and researching. Right. So a lot of it, a lot of that conviction came from my network. Um, which leads to now. So now, you know, I actually have a different thesis on how to play the markets. A lot of it's just market edge, right? So compared to 2017, I found the favorable strategy to find projects that could withstand the test of time and have permanent application into enterprise. Now it's a mix of both. So you do want to be finding gems that maybe haven't been fully found, lower market cap, and have the promise of what Chainlink did back in 2017 to 2020, or similar projects, there's there's a few in that in that range. But it's also finding your edge in the market with your network. So you've seen the change in volume in, the, in 2020 till now, basically, like summer 2020, and you've seen these phases that have trickled in and out of NFTs or sorry, let's start in the 2020 range. You had DeFi to um, DeFi's switch to the volume of Uniswap. Uniswap switching over to kind of a fundamental period of gems where Bitcoin was pumping, and then we transitioned to this really big area where 
anything with a uh, fundamental narrative was pumping. And then we had the NFT craze and then moving till now, which is kind of just like a, I would say a shitstorm of everything combined, which is really <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I found my success in actually separating from my previous 2017 thesis where it's buy and hold and found that an area to where if I was deep in the weeds doing hours of work research or just kind of being inside or, uh, you know, being involved in different protocols, I was able to develop like a market edge on each different volume aspect. So basically noticing where the market's changing finding different protocols before people could find them and getting involved early in finding my edge. So a big, uh, for example, a big one with that was actually the looking at with other scans. So a lot of people now don't realize that, um, you can, there's search aspects on other scan. You can actually, if you learn how to read contracts, you can see what's a scam beforehand. And I feel like a lot of this knowledge isn't learned by 99% of the people. They're just looking for a quick cash grab. So what I do is before I really look into projects i you know obviously i try and read through the contract and basically what i've learned with solidity i don't know how to write it but i know how to read it um and you know now we have tools like rug sniffer which kind of gives you a brief idea of what can be changed but there's so many different interdependencies of the contract combined with who's running it that kind of makes this different um but a big one is like ico craze back in 2021 when we saw these um i think it was you saw a lot of pre-sales with VCs, right? And they had a ton of hype behind them, tons of influencers. And I wasn't involved in any of these, unfortunately. So I, <laughs> I say, unfortunately, there's a lot of these 100X in, with like 10K investments, which mm -hmm. is the easiest money for these VCs could make. But my market edge there, what I would do was find the contract early on and buy outside of the, the user interfaces. So if you use Etherscan, um, and this is kind of some alpha I, people still do people still don't do this and I'm confused why you can write on each contract and fill in certain criteria and you can access these coins in block one right after the bots do mm. and you're in before people who are able to get in using the user, the Uniswap UI so that you know as an example of market edge that's what I would do so now I have an edge over first buy on these really hyped ICO projects back in April of 2021, able to get in right after the bots. And I was getting a 10 to 20 X on huge investments with huge liquidity. And it didn't require me doing really anything other than just using the contract functions, which anyone can do. So the, the big part of this now, you know, kind of full circling is my with higher volume, and money flow coming in the markets, it's really important to find an edge over what the normal person can do. If you're stuck in the criteria that every 99% of the people are doing, you, you're, you know, you're, you're competing against everybody. So my thesis is how can I find ways to compete with the least number of people possible and get an edge over everybody else? Yeah. And that, you know, and you know, that still combines with finding tokens that have great theses and making sure and seeing what can withstand the test of time. I still do that. In, in a general sense, but not finding, not not being very involved with the volume. I feel was was a you know you're putting yourself at a disadvantage, and you're not really putting yourself in the way to make it the most ROI as possible now compared to 2017. Yeah, and you you seem to have uh, because of your your ability to read solidity and kind of the technical knowledge that you have um, when it comes to like EtherScan, you're able to do things that, like you said, it allows you to kind of capitalize in ways that people can't or or maybe don't have the technical knowledge to do and so i think that that does that is 
that makes a lot of sense why your thesis changed. Uh, it sounds like, you know, prior to that, the best thing that you could do and what, you know, if someone doesn't have that technical knowledge is to really look at like the quality of a project uh, and see because like you said, like it's um, it's hard to stand the test of time if you're looking for a really quick dollar, especially if you don't have that technical knowledge. Uh, and it's kind of cool to hear that as you continue to watch the market, you were able to kind of see the shifts because that's exactly what's been happening. Every time in, in the last few years, there's like a shift in where the attention has been. And it sounds like you've been able to kind of watch that and see where that shift happens and kind of capitalize on it, which is incredible. Um, something that I don't know if I'd ever be able to do. But one thing that I wanted to, I want to pivot here for a second, because in talking about kind of long term and why things have done well, something that completely crashed one of my theses uh, back back when I first started investing, which was about finding companies that add utility, right? Like, uh, like you said, with Chainlink and Aave and Lend, like these are things that can really change the market because of what they bring to the game with their smart contracts and what they do. And when the Doge, when Dogecoin started to rocket and got uh, started climbing the ranks, I was like one of the first people to to talk shit on it. I was like, what is this? Like, why would you invest in this? And also with Shiba coin. And so, but by watching those two markets, I also had to step back and rethink because obviously they're in the top 15 coins, both of them. And so I was like, okay, like obviously instead of just co constantly putting them down, I had to kind of had to shift my thinking about why are these coins doing well? Why, what makes them uh, so appealing to people? And, and I think the one thing that I realized is that coins for a lot of people, for finance guys like you and I, or people that understand technical analysis or understand the fundamentals and the teams and do that research, it's easy for us to kind of be like, wow, these coins have no utility. Why are, Why would people go into them? But for someone that's just getting involved in the market and just learning about cryptocurrency, they go and they look at one price and obviously those two coins because of high supply, they have tiny, tiny price so people feel like they get a lot. And two, the meme value and seeing them everywhere makes people feel like, oh yeah, everyone investing in these. And so they've like actually been a huge onboarding process, but I'd love for you to kind of talk um, a little bit about shit coins for a second because of their lasting value and why they've kind of uh, kind of uh, basically stand the, the stood the test of time and are still around and haven't died um, and why that, you know, these meme coins and these altcoins that really have no purpose in terms of utility and value can still be a huge onboarding process to people into like the crypto ecosystem. Yeah. So, I mean, this is kind of a a switch in what we're what we've been seeing especially as someone from finance you know we, we look at things with revenue price to earnings ratios and how to derive value with financial methods and now we're, we're you know crypto did have in its infancy i mean you don't really there was a lot of coins that were promising usually that never provided but now you have meme to tokens that are literally telling you they have no utility and what do they do but then they get to these huge market caps and i think the reality of it is it's you know it's it's worth we think about it it's really easy to be like this will have value later on but 99% of these are just scams and that's that's kind of the big problem but you know but focusing straight on the picture of doge and shiba and what they were able to to do 
Now, it, it's really easy to say they're overvalued, and I really, really can't even like speak on that because of the way that I've switched my thinking um, comparatively to the projects with you know good utility and what they could do later on, like Chainlink or Aave. You know why? Why is it justifiable to say why should Doge and Shiba have these gigantic market caps compared to even traditional finance companies? And there really isn't a justifiable reason for that. But I can kind of speak on why you see them last the test of time, and why the market cap is justifiable in some reasons at a lower level. I mean, memes and these cultural aspects of tokens have this new type of value to where it's kind of flipped on its head. You know, we look at products in traditional world in the traditional world that have revenue drivers and they develop this high quality product, like let's use Tide for example. And then you develop this brand loyalty where people are coming and they're buying Tide because they find that Tide's product is high quality and they rep they respect they uh connect with the brand, right? And they build this community of people who love Tide and who only buy Tide. And now we're looking at the model differently to where you have all these people who maybe don't have financial literacy in, in the way they use financial tools to derive value. And they're just looking at it as like Doge and Chiba is, is cool, it's fun, it's a meme. And we've never found the way to derive value from community sense of a meme. Now let's now let's look at this differently and say, you know, so I'm using Doge and Chiba an example of coins that came out with zero utility, but they created this brand loyalty in a sense that Doge and Shiba is, are literally just encapsulating the brand loyalty of people who are investing in memes and who find that memes have some sort of value to them, and that's their investment thesis. Now, I'm not saying that's with everybody, and a lot of people are just finding it as like a cash grab. But you know, as as we're looking at as uh, as we're looking at as a way of deriving value, I see it as brand loyalty. So let's say that Doge and Shiba are actual companies, and they started to create revenue drivers like Doge and Shiba apparel, Doge and Shiba products, and let's say they had a high quality, well, you already have the brand loyalty there. People love Doge and Shiba, and they would be buying the Doge and Shiba products. So, you know, at that, at that point, if Doge and Shiba started to create revenue drivers, can we really say the market cap of them is unjustifiable at that point because of the brand loyalty and the revenue that they could possibly create? Mm -hmm. Now, once we started looking analytics, and see how much revenue they're creating, then it's really easy to see what the market cap is justifiable or not. But that's how I'm seeing it, especially someone from finance, is it's flipped on its head, and it's completely different from what we've ever seen. And I think it's really hard to really say what the proper valuation could be given what it actually is and, and what it represents. Um, but that's how I'm kind of seeing memes and cultural tokens now is it's kind of just this new sense of reality. And I know a lot of people don't like them and have negative connotations about why they're sucking up so much to the market cap. And mm -hmm. it's tough for investors who are looking at things from a very technical, fundamental way of, of what the value is later on and seeing this happen. So, But I, I think it's important for us to start looking at things from not a perspectival lens of why this is happening, this is bad, to you know, or rather this is bad to why, how is this happening? How is the value derived? And is there a different way we could think about this creatively yeah. rather than just looking at things from the same lens that we've been focused on for the past 20 to 30 years of looking at value uh, derivation? Well, and the other thing that, you know, the first time that I really started to shift my thinking was the, earlier this year because of, until then I was like you. I, I mean, I was like this. I made no sense to me. I, I mean, I just, I really talked 
badly about these coins because I just was like, this is, this makes no sense and people are going to get hurt by it. Uh, and But what I've realized since then is that one, like you said, that brand loyalty in a sense, in a way, a lot of these people actually, um, I feel like the Wall Street Bets movement uh, moved a lot of people into some of these coins and it kind of created a community in a sense where a lot of these people were kind of um, getting to know each other that were beginners in, in the crypto ecosystem. For them, they didn't understand what Chainlink or Ave or Lend was, but they understood because of memes and because of someone tweeting like Elon Musk or because of the hype, they understood like Doge and Shiba. They knew that it was a cheap coin, that they could buy some, that they hoped that it would go up. Uh, and it made sense. They, and they thought, you know, if a lot of people are buying it, then it'll go up more, which is fine. I mean, that's true. And one aspect that I, d- I thought was always fascinating is that uh, the communities that were created from these coins is when I started to change my mindset. Because once I got more involved onto Twitter, I saw some huge uh, networks of people that were involved into these coins. And still to today, you see, you know, these communities coming together, and some really good friends being met from like the Doge or the Shiba ecosystem. And if anything, I felt like, you know, these are people that basically starting their journey together and are learning and are basically able to learn about the ecosystem of of crypto and finance. And I think that that was powerful. And I was like, you know, in terms of onboarding, some of these coins are probably have a lot of value and have a lot of potential. And that kind of is what started my mental and mindset shift in terms of the potential of them is that if they can create a community, if they can create kind of a onboarding, then it has a lot of power because this our world we live in, we are very financially illiterate 95% of people, we haven't been taught you know, these things. And so this ecosystem of the blockchain is one that we can't expect people to understand, especially for guys like you or I that are obsessed with it, or like really enjoy it. That's not necessarily a lot of people's mindsets. And so there is a lot of learning that has to be done. And I felt like these coins are like the easiest to onboard. And some of the people that I talk to that get in, um, even that know that I've been into it, these are like the first coins that they got into. And I'm like shaking my head. I don't understand it. But that's the only that's really where I feel like the value can come in just like a shared unity of, um, you know, uh, of like trying to understand this whole ecosystem. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, the other part that, you know, if we separate from from looking at this as like a logical way of how we could really derive value of these memes and cultural tokens, I think the other part of it is what's so not taught or what what's so negatively looked at is the people buying these are thinking they're going to go on these crazy runs, especially like Doge and Shiba, the memes around one dollar. It's you know it's impractical to think like that. And mm. do do I I don't argue that I think a lot of people are going to get financially hurt who are over leveraged in these thinking that they're going to get rich but on the on, you know on the controversy if you're looking at this as like a way to connect yourself with a community of people and it's similar to brands like supreme where you might be buying very over priced clothing but you're connecting with this community of like i own supreme i don't think it's different from someone saying i own doge i own shiba as like almost like not a flex but a way to connect um but, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think it's just it's really important to separate from those people who think that Doge and Shiba are going to get them very rich because, you know, it's unrealistic to say that Doge or Shiba will reach those value metrics, especially seeing Bitcoin being at a one trillion dollar market cap. You know, how do we really is it is it? 
impractical to expect Doge or Shiba to hit those market cap numbers that Bitcoin or surpass Ethereum, anything like that. And, you know, to me, I think that's unrealistic, Mm -hmm. but I don't think that we should discount community metrics and how you could build communities using these tokens and create proper valuations that that aren't, you know, used as like people are just trying to get rich, but it's impractical. Yeah, and I think uh, I love what you said because I do think it, in terms of, um, it goes back to the financial literacy part. When people say things like it's Doge to a dollar or uh, Shiba to a dollar, you know, it's like, do you even understand what the market cap would mean if it hit the dollar? And I think many people don't, right? Like a lot of people don't understand if that if the coin actually hit a dollar, what that means the market cap would be in terms of the value of this this coin. And I think that is part of the thing when it's like being introduced into the market because of a coin like this and then learning and learning about the ecosystem and then being able to invest and if you make money being able to use that to invest in other things is pretty powerful too um but i i know that you another thing that i wanted to touch on is that these coins also uh, a lot of them are not owned by you know, Chainlink or Aave, that a majority of those uh, funds or there's a certain percentage that are allocated to a team because it's really more like a company. It's not like a decentralized asset. And so that's one thing that is true somewhat to these coins is that there's really no company involved. So it's, it's very much in a sense like Bitcoin in terms of a hard asset that, you know, you can transfer that isn't really controlled. But the problem is with like some of the fair launch or some of the issues where there can be certain coin holders that control a huge market, like uh, a a huge section of the market. And I know you've talked a little bit about the danger of that uh, when it came to Shiba, because there's, I I think, um, someone that hold like 18% of the supply, correct me if I'm wrong, they just started becoming active again. And so then that makes you worried about uh, what if this person starts to sell a big portion of theirs, what would that do to the market? So talk to a little, talk to me a little bit about when these coins launch the um the power of them potentially being kind of like a decentralized hard asset and but in order to do that how to make sure and what's the best way to make sure that it's able to kind of get into the hands of as many people as possible as quickly as possible so that you know there's not a few people controlling the whole market yeah so i think that speaks to the uh, relevancy of decentralization a big part of decentralization and getting out of the realms of the security is the distribution. So if we look at Shiba, for example, someone holding $5 billion worth of the supply, I don't know what the valuation now might have dipped to somewhere in the billions, but that is a crazy amount of someone to have access to, which is completely different to like a company metric, where if you look at, you know, Tesla, if someone owns 18% of the supply of Tesla for whatever reason, uh, assuming it's Elon Musk, right? He has to go through certain parameters to start selling that, whether it's you know publicly announcing anything like that as a protection to investors. Um, and you know, there's there's a lot of controversy to say like you know, does should the SEC have the power to do that? Is this like right as a right of a person to sell in a free market their asset? But if we look at Shiba for an example, if someone's five billion dollars, there is nothing that prevents them from absolutely tanking every person's money in that token and that is a danger that you kind of put yourself in if you're an investor in tokens like this is properly you need to look at the proper distribution and see you know what one malicious actor can do to the price of your community because you know 
the problem is, is like you look at this and you don't know who they are. So there is no way that we can be like, you know, what is their intent? Are they malicious? Do they want to keep holding? I mean, if you look at anyone holding five billion dollars, that is generational wealth. What is, you know, at what point do you separate malicious from someone just cashing out and, and living the rest of their days from doing whatever they want? Even at a hundred million, they could do that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's hard to really think about other than looking at like the maliciousness of the distribution. So you obviously don't you don't want a soup you don't want someone to hold as high supply because they they you know at a certain point even if they're not malicious they will start dumping huge amounts. At the on the other hand, you you want a proper distribution. Uh, but it's harder to get at certain market caps because it involves tons of different people selling and buying. So it's it's kind of the flip of a coin, in my opinion. It's just you know, Shiba, for example, at the five billion, it's it's just you know, I personally wouldn't be putting money into something like that, even with the community aspect, knowing that one person controls my destiny. One person at a flip of a switch could start dumping meticulously on every exchange and sucking up all the liquidity, and then what? Shiba's at a low valuation other than the people buying up the dips as the community, but then you hit the true valuation of what it is with, with a proper distribution. So distribution plays a big role in what the market cap of community-oriented coins could be, uh, especially given you know the, the intent of someone holding a supply like that. And you know that brings in a lot of different issues, the market cap, potential liquidity, but you know it's it's really you know even with 33 billion dollars of market cap you don't have 5 billion of liquidity liquidity right. is a totally separate aspect of the uh, the funds in the market that can be pulled as well as sellers and buyers so you know shiba in a sense is is separable since it's on exchanges you have order books so it's really you know how many buyers do you have that would buy up 5 billion dollars worth of shiba and the answer is you know nowhere close but it would suck the order books dry and that would be you know a huge issue yeah okay i want to pivot here because after talking about all these things with kind of the the metrics of some of these coins that we've seen kind of take the stage as community and meme coins with shiba and uh doge there's obviously room for other kind of cultural tokens um as the market progresses however uh, now that we've seen kind of how these have evolved, it almost allows for some entities to kind of figure out an even better way to make them happen. And so I know that you've been working with the GM token and devs as an advisor. Uh, and so I'd love for you to talk about kind of this, uh, the GM token in, in the sense of what you have seen and kind of the... Um, the co- comparing and contrasting it to what we just talked about with Shiba and Doge. Obviously, we are a long, long way of seeing any sort of token get up the ranks of Shiba and Doge. Um, there's because of the high market caps that those have. But if this, if a token was able to do something like that and become a cultural token, what are some things that you that you'd want to look for early on um, to see kind of? a a true diverse market kind of taking hold in order to really push something uh, as a community to the top of, of, of like the market charts. Yeah. So with that, I like to think of GM as something different. It's not just a meme owned by a community. It's a cultural movement that can represent brand loyalty. So as an advisory sense, I look at the meme community and I see uh, you know, in my opinion, overvaluations of things that uh, don't have any revenue drivers. So with GM, my idea to help is to, you know, obviously keep the idea of flipping this meta on its head of building community before utility. 
and building this cultural movement based on something that everyone says every day. So you can build this huge community of people. I want to, you know, let's not even look at price and market cap because it's hard to really value these things without utility or anything like that other than just kind of, you know, us discussing what, what it could be. But GM, the strategy here is you're building this community of people doing of, of something positive and something connecting and something that creates brand loyalty of this idea. And then you start after that, you start building these revenue drivers that connect back to the brand loyalty. So that that's the missing piece of what these meme tokens have is there is no one there that can really create the sense of a legal structure and company behind a movement that is tokenized. So, you know, as GM progresses right now, it's in the phase of building community, of connecting people, of doing good acts, of showing what GM is as a cultural movement. But as you get into the structures of what we're building, we're working with the top 20 law firm. We're creating a legal structure that is comparable to public company in your you're building a full network of things to create different LLCs that can generate revenue based on a cultural movement that connects brand loyalty. So at the moment, the token is tokenized brand loyalty that has revenue drivers building later on that connects people and builds up a metric sense in in the financial world that actually GM, that gives GM real world value connected to revenue and the community at the same time. And, you know, I don't think there's a ceiling at that point. If you have metrics on top of community, then you have two different ideas of what is deriving value in a tokenized sense. So, you know, at, at the end of the day, this is this is an experiment, but the experiment's going really well as you progress to this idea of already building a community very quickly. Exchange is becoming very interested in seeing how this would pro- progress as, as I talk to them about it. And building something that's not just some cash grab, but it's this this almost this enterprise, this uh, this this legacy that's being created that has utility and that has revenue drivers later on. Thus, the revenue isn't being generated as a tax anymore. The revenue would be generated as a sense of the traditional company. And that kind of uses, you know, my, my thesis once again has been since 2017 is finding things that can connect to our traditional enterprise sense that still has the tokenized aspect. So it gives GMs utility in different ways, whether it's governance or some sort of other utility. And then the other utility is the revenue driver of of the GM movement. So now we have a token that does connect with our traditional enterprise and doesn't overthrow anything, but still provides that innovation of something that is far more creative than just the traditional company that has revenue and has an interest from these seed investors who are putting in tons of money and the seed investors get rich as the public's buying later on. But rather now you have this community decentralized area that people can buy into a cultural aspect. And then as you start to see the revenue drivers pile up and this legacy is created, then you have these bigger investors start coming in because like, oh, my God, there's metrics. Oh, my God, this is something that I can drive from a financial tool. So that's my idea of flipping it on its head is I love Doge and Shiba as an idea, but I don't love that there's no one behind it that can actually create a metricable revenue driver connected to the culture, to, connected to the movement, connected to the community. And that's what's but that's what I like about advising with GM is building something that kind of connects all the synapses that I've thought of 
and building into one beautiful movement that does good for the world, that isn't focused on just being a pump and dump cash grab, but can build something of legacy. Yeah. And one thing, I mean, I should disclose too, I have uh, like over 200 million of GM coin, and I really wanted to bring you on just to chat a little bit more because I think uh, my conviction of the coin I had bought towards the top, and I think I've told you this story, I bought towards the top and I've been buying basically ever since uh, all the dips uh, and just putting as much as I can to continue to increase my holding. But it's, it is weird for me to do this because it's gone fundamentally different than pretty much all of my investment thesis prior. But pr- part of the reason that uh, I've become so bullish and, and wanted to get involved in to the GM token is partly because of the, the community and how fast the community has evolved. And I feel like any sort of fair launch, when you have fair launch and you start at zero, it, it it is uh, really hard, just like we were talking about Doge and Shiba, to kind of make it fair to everyone. There's obviously those first buyers where the, you know one ETH can buy billions and billions and a, per, a small percentage of the entire market share. And so uh, that's the one thing that always had me uh, fearful of even buying into this coin was like there when you have fair launch, the first 100 to 200 buyers are getting in at such a low rate that you know at the end of the day, you do have to kind of trust them but then also you trust the team and i always thought it was really amazing that you guys have come out and you guys have docs and kind of um, shown that what you are building and how passionate you are about it and that this is something that you see long-term vision in and so one thing well a couple questions first um as an advisor i know that uh for most advisory roles you're not able were you able to buy into any of the coin or you you as an advisor you have to stay out of the coin uh, I mean, we have no metrics on what I'm able to buy on, you know, decentralized, like a DAX, you know. Yeah. So there was a contract that said that I couldn't buy into the token. Um, so, I mean, that I mean that's a big incentive, though, is skin in the game. And yeah, exactly. Think, you know, I, I think that people who create contracts that are like, you know, here's your advisory, you can't buy in this coin. I think that they're losing um, a big part of what the advisor's, advisor's interest is is, you know, skin in the game aspect. If I don't hold GM, do I really have the incentive to build it and put it in the hours other than, you know, what I'm paid to do? So I think, like, as an equity-wise standpoint of looking at startups and giving, you know, entr- like uh, early early adopters who are helping build this equity, I think it's very similar, except the GM team didn't give me equity. I bought off a decentralized exchange. So to answer that, con- yeah. answer that, answer that, I, you know, I do have skin in the game. That's good. And I think that's one thing that I've always thought was important. I mean, essentially, when you have a fair launch, I would always hope, uh, and I've even talked to you about this, I would hope that the people that are behind it have a a good amount of skin in the game, because they're the ones that are the ones building it and creating the tools for the community and are putting in so many hours. When you have have some of these tokens that are started by companies, they obviously hold 15 to 20% back. But when you have a fair launch, the only way to do that is to buy it off the exchange. And by actually buying it, if you're on the team and holding it and showing that you have belief in it, then you do have, like you said, you have skin in the game to build it to be the, the as powerful as you want it to be. Um, and I think that is important. And so I'm glad glad to hear that. And I think it's also important for people um, to, to be able to see that the power of the people that are involved in this coin believe it believe uh, for in the long term and that you've been working so hard behind the scenes in it. One thing that I am curious about is, like you said, eventually 
um, the the goal is that it will continue to become more and more decentralized. That's all, always the goal of these community tokens. Um, and so as you you kind of we've only been and the GM tokens only been around for 12 days. But what are as you have kind of seen the market uh, go up and then sell off and go up and sell off? I mean, it seems like a very healthy way to continue to distribute some of that wealth. In your opinion, is it important for some of the bigger holders that kind of bought in early to sell off some of their shares early on? Or is it important for them to hold? Um, Because like you said, once it gets into multi-billion dollars, market cap one person's holding uh, of like a, a large percentage could make people fearful so i'm sure you guys have thought about that in terms of you know top holders the people that bought in first and uh, i'm curious what do you what's the best way to make sure people uh beyond just kind of watching those wallets that have a lot of coins when you have like a decentralized community launch like this what are some of the best ways to make sure that it continues to become more and more decentralized as time goes on so you know it's tough to answer that question without saying you know my you know the financial advice of someone holding is really it's a free market and they can do whatever they want but theoretically Mm -hmm. if i'm looking at this as me personally buying into some random token that has that i believe has the ability to, you know, do go the distance, and I have a large percent of the supply. Personally, I think in my strategy to create and build more decentralization and distribution, as someone who would have a large supply of a, of any token, is to sell off slowly into the pump of the token. So as you see, you know, larger volumes of green of people buying. Selling off slowly into those not only increases your vested interest of you thinking that the coin will go the distance, but also prevents people being scared off of the possible malicious intent of you having um, later on down the road. So mm-hmm. answer, that, answer that question really, you know, what as a large holder, what should you be doing? And I think it's really up to the general strategy of them. If a large holder doesn't think the project will go the distance, you know, it's still in their best interest to sell slowly at higher rates without dumping down the token or else they're they're not optimizing their potential rewards um if they think it'll go to distance once again it's not optimal to dump at a lower price rather dump as the token kind of moves upward but also you know it's hard to control price action so it really is what is the question really is what is the optimal strategy for a holder who has a large distribution depending on what their narrative of the token really is. Yeah. And I can't speak for other people when it comes to this, but it really is the individual strategy. And as a team, you can't really control or tell people what they can and can't do is this is a free market. And then you get into like market manip- manipulation territory and, and all of these certain aspects. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think it's like, you know, if I personally wouldn't be selling 10% or 1% of the supply and one sell on a DEX or a, or a centralized exchange is I'm not optimally getting enough profits from it. Um, but you know, that's, that's kind of how I would answer that question. Yeah. It's tough and it's, it's, based on the person's strategy and what they believe the narrative is. Well, and like you said, I love that you kind of brought it back to conviction because we've already seen there are some large token holders in the first 12 days that have basically sold off a large percentage. Uh, And and so it's clear like who has a longer term vision of the project. But I think one thing that makes me go back to is like the, I'm sure you're familiar with like the Potoshi wallet or, you know, the the wallet that everyone believes, but no one really knows for sure of of Potoshi. 
Satoshi back with Bitcoin days, kind of keeping the uh, network alive by slowly mining and, and has over 800,000 uh, tokens that have never been moved. And so there's always there's also like this this interesting aspect of, you know, the people that are creating kind of these decentralized networks, you have to have, you know, at some point, you you have to have the good of the the network and what you're building at mind. And, and I think it is interesting. I think he had a different wallet that he would do exchanges from. But that that original wallet that kind of started the market has never really been touched. And I think that is fascinating and, and just kind of has built trust within the Bitcoin network. And so I'd love for you to talk about kind of like as it, how hard it is now for um, people to create a decentralized network, even with Ethereum, with Vitalik being like a, a doxed face, you know, how difficult it can be with, you know, we'll never be able to have the the anonymous pseudonym of Satoshi Nakamoto again, because that's already been established. So how difficult it can be to create a really fair decentralized uh, market of a token, but then at the same time, how important it can be to kind of create new tokenomics for different types of holders as well. Yeah, so the Satoshi wallet kind of is an interesting dilemma. Um, you know, what happens if money moves from the Satoshi wallet? <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's interesting as, it, it's, as it's, a, it's ironic in my, my opinion as Bitcoin is like this trustless way to pursue transactions, but at the same time we're and people are invested in this idea of trustless identity uh, or trustless transactions, trustless everything. But then you have this unknown character holding a very large percent of supply that would do something similar to what the Shiba holder could do. So it's, you know, it's, it's hard to really wrap your head around because you are trusting this anonymous character. And, you know, I don't, it's hard for me to really put a comment on something like that. It's, it's more just like, or it's, it, it exists. Um, I don't think it ex should exist in that way for many projects. I think that there should be ways to get rid of this in some sort of way. Obviously, there's no restraint from someone buying a ton of a token after of launch, but like, there's got to be different ways to prevent anything from this happening. Because trusting someone who no one knows is obviously kind of what crypto has evolved into, which is really an interesting dilemma as well. So I think it's kind of just how the community starts to evolve. I don't think anonymity is a negative thing, but I think that trusting someone fully anonymous to not do something like that would is, is kind of weird. Um, the other thing is, you know, someone doing that and cashing it out they actually can never really get the cash because they wouldn't be anonymous anymore you know it <laughs> so that that also puts into the dilemma like they don't really have the incentive to ever move it so you know that adds to the trust barrier um and sorry can you repeat what was the second part of that question you're talking about kind of defined tokenomics just uh when you're when like someone or like you the team with gm with them trying to create as fair launch of it as possible when you're trying to like kind of uh create as fair of a launch as possible with the token what what things that you kind of have to consider uh with with these because let's be honest there's thousands and thousands of these that launch and you know there may be one or two that go run to the top so what are the things that like as a developer that are on your mind uh and as an advisor to make sure that like this this token has a chance to run to the top um i i, I guess is the the second question I mean, a lot of that 
you know, starting out these tokens, uh, I mean, getting to where it is now, the part, the part of the launch is locked. You know, it's like you can only control so much, like putting in restrictions on buy orders, um, restrictions on like max capital wallet, anything like that, to where it becomes more nuanced of someone owning a very large chunk of the supply. But getting to like a really top community getting past the phase of the initial distribution is kind of just getting lucky and trying to build and show and prove conviction of holders who have large percentages of supply early on. Now it's not as much of an issue since liquidity is built up so much off the initial kind of our legal team calls it a capital raise um, and liquidity pull. Uh, it become it's became a lot less of an issue now comparatively to the beginning because there is no restriction of someone trying to do everything possible on a large chunk of the supply and then just dumping it down and then what you lose your your community's conviction because it's one it's early, very very infancy first day and the other thing is you know they haven't really connected to the project as much as they have now so getting past day one to day two day one and day two areas of making sure someone doesn't just dump it down to zero it's very just kind of contributing to a factor of luck you know mm-hmm. it, especially in a fair launch because if you if you control the holders off the break then it isn't a fair launch anymore it's very similar to just the vc pre-raise yeah um so you know my my answer is you know for fair launches it's kind of just getting lucky and trying to do everything possible to make it more difficult to own large chunks of the supply yeah and and i'll ask one more question then we'll bring up a few people if you have a question or if you've put a question in the chat please hit that request button to come up we'll take a few questions for max um but i think the one other thing that i was curious about is when you one thing that really made me super bullish on like the community of this token specifically was seeing you know some of the massive uh wallets that were constantly helping um basically seed and fund whenever there was a huge drop in i've I've been fascinated this last week i need to stop looking at the chart so much but it's been fascinating seeing trying something like this trying to get born uh and and launch because it really does take a lot of conviction from at least a handful of people that have liquidity to continue to help um you know anytime that there is a drop come in and save the market and we've been seeing that in this token and so i'd love for you to see i'm sure you haven't really seen anything like it before some of the massive whales that are in this token and continually kind of helping bu- uh, build up the supply because they believe in it is really fascinating i'd love for you to talk about how important that is in in these markets too is having some people that have conviction that actually have the ability to come in and save the day like the day when there was a hack and someone um someone stole like five billion and just dumped it on the market yeah, so a lot of that is transparency, to be honest with you. So being connected with everybody as much as possible, showing what's going on behind the scenes, the Twitter spaces that we do in the background, and trying to be completely transparent of what's going on and what's coming out um, kind of creates that connection with, with your community. And especially early on, that connection is really needed to build this up. Um, as far as, you know, influence of different people buying the bottom and supporting it i think it's you know i think it's very similar on other tokens with high community conviction is one they uh they want to see the success of it and two they they see that this is a uh kind of a more of a accumulation phase on a chart and they're seeing it as this 
probably has the likelihood of going much higher. So if people are viewing it like an R&R standpoint with, and they have conviction in the project, then they're seeing these as cheaper prices comparatively to what it was a week ago, and they're seeing it as an opportunity rather than them supporting anything other than, you know, they're supporting their original investment as well. So it's, you know, it's the incentivized structure of someone saying, thinking, I have more of a reward that this will, the, the likelihood of this going to a higher price is, is a lower risk compared to the reward that's associated. So it makes mm-hmm. more sense to buy here. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that connects with the transparency of it is they have that conviction that this is a price point that they see as cheaper based on what the team is building and what they're telling and what they're being honest with um, comparatively to tokens that don't really have that outspoken character of, of the founder of the team. And they're not trying to really build community. They're just in the background building utility and when you flip it on its head and you have community first, you have to be super transparent because the conviction isn't in it. The convictions in the community and what could be built rather than, you know, mm-hmm. the founders knowing that two or three years down the line, like Chainlink, for example, the founders didn't say anything in 2017 and people had the conviction based on the information that was provided of what they're building as, as the fixing the Oracle problem. But the founder and team didn't really say anything. They never really tried to you know, hold and be transparent because they know in two to three years that the project's value will be much higher based on what they're building. So that conviction of the project team is different when you flip it on its head and you're you're dealing with community oriented first rather than utility. Yeah, um, and you love that because it's like the people that have the conviction in the community like you said, the people even though in this is a little different than Chainlink even because the people in the community that are really the ones that believe and continue to add to the narrative are the ones that see all the success because there isn't a portion, there isn't 15% held back that are held up by, you know, the developers and the team. And so I think that is super powerful powerful too is that when you have this community first in a decentralized aspect or coin it really uh it it's like a game changer and the the way that this was being launched and it is uh because of the cultural relevance of it to the nft space it also got a lot of attention which allowed so many people i mean within the first week there was almost fifteen thousand holders i mean that just uh goes to show too the 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 amount of community that is being developed it's not an easy thing to do and it's got to feel it's got to feel pretty um satisfying seeing the what's happened so far uh and just uh it's gotta it's gotta feel rewarding for for you guys to be able to see how this has evolved because um because now it's like you're able to help support a community and not just you know try to get something off the ground you're like a part of the community now yeah no it's definitely um very satisfying especially in the beginning days of the, the you know i was putting probably 80 to 100 hours of negotiating with exchanges dealing with legal teams dealing with the audit you know there's a lot of factors beneath this that if you want to do something right and you want to meet regulation and you want to build something that will not just be a month to six month project but be a project that lasts five to 20 years in this space and and conveys um that you know this is someone who wants to work with this is a project that wants to work properly with the regulatory authorities that you know the work behind the scenes early on is not something to uh to you know to to discount so the satisfaction of the community is much more important than me of building the community compared to any of the price of it 
knowing that the community is is seeing this progress and they have conviction in this cultural movement and then you know whatever the price is will convey the valuation later on based on what everything is built i think my satisfaction will only grow as we start to see more things being built and being pushed out by the gm team um and as they uh, as they heed my advice and we get into kind of the the bulk of the the building of utility later on i think that's gonna be the most exciting part for me that's awesome all right let's move into some questions get your catnip and questions ready it's time for you to take the stage for another segment of Community Corner. All right, long-time listener of the show, Master Chef. always good to have you up here. Go ahead, man. Hey, how's it going, guys? Just want to ask a quick question. I know you said, or Crazy Carl said in the beginning that you've been in this space for like 10 years. That's a long time. How would you uh, advise someone to stay convicted in a space that could be so volatile? Yeah. That has a lot to do with research, to be honest with you. The more you research and the more you understand, the easier it is to kind of build your conviction. Obviously, if you're just buying something and you don't know anything about it, it's really hard to stay convicted based on price rising and price falling because your 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 interests are aligned with the price in the short term. But rather, if you if you start to build your knowledge and research over what a token could be, what what a project could be, how it can be integrated, the different utility mechanisms, what thing, how do things differ when you have a higher user base and more integrations, you start to realize that the short term price doesn't really mean anything other than the valuation of the present. So now, right now, you're starting to see valuations that are outside of the purview of what they actually are. Um, valuations on really every asset class is above what the uh, what it actually could be, and you really start to see this overvalued environment. So it's really important now to stop focusing on the price of things that you have high conviction on or building conviction on based on research, and think of it as you know what is the project building right now, and how are they getting closer to their vision that that you're building based on conviction. So the, a lot of it's just like stop. Stop worrying about the price in the short term if you have long-term dreams of it and just focus on what the project's doing to reach those points of where your conviction lies. Thank you. Great question, Master Chef. All right, next we've got on stage uh, someone that also looks like they've, they're have they into Link. Uh, welcome, Tag. How are you? Oh, they dropped down. While we're waiting to see if they come back up, I do have a question um, off of the Twitter thread at the top. Um, it said, "Where did this is from niftyniles.eth. He said, where did your tradition of ending the day with good night future billionaires come from? Honestly, I, <laughs> I, I feel like I started that like six months ago, and I, I don't know where it really came from other than I just did it one day and then I started doing it consistently and then it started to connect with my brand and people were messaging me and telling me they appreciate the positivity in times of downtrend, um, in times of volatility, um, in, in times of where they might be not thinking with their heads. So it kind of represents my conviction in the space as a longevity. Um, obviously it kind of appeals to the, uh, the psychological aspects of, you know, people wanting to make it and get rich off this space. So that kind of appeals to the to, to different stereotypes. But I think of it as, you know, this conviction in the space of, of, you know, there is money to be made and it doesn't have to be in the short term. And a billionaire aspect is very long term oriented and you don't have to invest in short term projects to reach that. But rather, you need to have a conviction in the overall market and the overall project you're buying. 
Yeah, that is a great answer. I mean, and I think uh, it's funny that you say you've been saying that for six months because it very much reminds me of like the wag me phrase of like, we're all going to make it. I feel like that's uh, kind of similar with saying like, good night, future billionaires, like we're all going to make it. So I think you were ahead of the curve on that one, Max. All right, we've got Greyhound up here. Greyhound is a, uh, in, in her bio, she says she's a GM maxi. So it's good to have you up here, Greyhound. Go ahead. Yo, what's up, guys? GM to everyone. GM. Um, Max, I was just curious. I was following you pre-GM, which is how I found out about GM, and I noticed that you have some good alpha on a lot of like low-cap um, gaming tokens. I've kind of seen a sentiment from like Elio Trades and Becker talking about how if we go into uh, a bear market, that games, you know, games are starting to. Um, kind of separate themselves from like the price volatility and connected to Bitcoin. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are in terms of the continued momentum of gaming and crypto. And if in fact, um, yeah, it, you see games like decoupling in terms of uh, Bitcoin price volatility and what the future for that is. Thanks guys. So I think a lot of this comes into looking for the leader of the pack. So the tokens that have done well in bear markets, like Chainlink, for instance, were the leader of their of their general um, genre. So tokens that have done previously well, you know, I don't think that gaming can be discounted. It's a huge market, but I don't think all gaming tokens are going to do well and decouple from Bitcoin. I think the ones that are leading the pack and their projects and what they're building and how they're connecting with people are the ones that will decouple and do well in a bear market environment, especially given. So as you progress from bullish to bearish, you start to see cash flows dip a lot. And from what this was, you know, it looks like a sustainable environment now. But when the volume starts to decrease, then you have to look for projects very particularly on what they can do and the conviction orientation. So my my answer to that is if you can find the right one that you think can withstand the test of time and can capture volume in, a, in an environment with a lot less cash flows, then I think that you will do great. And I don't think that really is connected to any separate genre. Obviously, it's... Uh, or a crypto class, obviously, if you're looking at something that um, connects a higher volume of people, you have a higher chance of getting the cash flows oriented. But I think if you're basically looking at any crypto class and how they associate and finding the best one, in your opinion, based on your research conviction, then you have a higher likelihood of just buying every gaming token you possibly can and hoping that all of them are, you know, decoupling or, you know, similarly, three or four, I think it's better to have conviction in one in a bearish market comparatively to now. Awesome. Thank you. Max, it's been quite an honor having you on the show, man. Appreciate you taking time to do it. I think this is uh, this hour has flown by a lot of good um, conversation. We have a lot of NFT people on this show. And so having a uh, conversation fixed more around just uh, coins and crypto native um, chat, I think will be useful for several people that were tuning in. But also, I just enjoyed um, the general conversation. So thanks so much for taking time. And um, before we end the show, I also give you a chance. I know you have a television group but i'll give you a chance to chat about anything that you'd like to uh when it comes to uh everything that you put out in terms of content yeah i mean i don't i don't really need feel the need to plug myself um <laughs> I, <laughs> I i don't really use my telegram group too much too often anymore i've kind of just separated to building with with gm and tweeting things in the macro sense i think that's going to be much better for me 
um, as far as separating away from Twitter. Um, I'm here to produce content that I feel can be valuable for people as well as myself. I think it's more of like an electronic journal than anything else. Um, and you know, if you feel the need to want to follow me, I, I welcome it and hope that my content can be valuable to you. But I, you know, I, I feel no need to, to plug or, or kind of incentivize any of you to, to follow me. I'm here to connect and talk with anyone who wants to, and, uh, hope that I can answer questions later on for you. And, you know, if you're here to follow, that's great. Welcome. And, uh, I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, thank you so much for having me on the show. Happy to do these interviews now and kind of talk through how I view the markets, how I view people and, you know, what my thesis is on these environments and how they change. So thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And I think, um, just being able to, uh, just also being able to see how your mindset has shifted, but also, like you said, um, I'm a huge, uh, you, you haven't tuned in uh, to many shows. I know you hopped in here one time, but I talk a lot about conviction and you use that word about 15 times today. And so uh, your, uh, your mindset in this space is very similar to mine. And so I always would love to have you back on as a guest in the future. But I can also just go to say as well before we end the show that um, as someone that was just getting into the GM token uh, last week, you know, and uh, I had reached out to Max and I know he's been super swamped but you have been always open to like trying to answer dms um and talking uh through any questions and so i always really appreciated that and so when you say you know you're here to connect i've i found that to be very true and something that you definitely didn't have to do and so i really appreciated that and i wanted to let you know how much that meant in terms of uh kind of the transparency uh that you you did connect with me on that level and to to keep it up because uh I know if it meant a lot to me, it means a lot to anyone that kind of reaches out to you. I'm glad you uh, you found it appreciative. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to really talk with anyone. I find that network is is your representation of net worth. So the more people I can talk to and, and get to know and hear their ideas, the more I can evolve mine in the future. So, Amen, know, I, brother. That's the best yeah, philosophy. Yeah. We've got to continue. You know, it's one thing to be stubborn like a Bitcoin maxi. It's another thing to con- con- continually embrace and lean into all the change. And that's so true. Yes, sir. Uh, I, uh, I agree with you 100% on that. All right, guys, this has been a fun one. If you missed any part of the show, I will get it uploaded here in a little bit um, because this was a great interview. So if you just hopped in, wait for that uh, podcast and I'll um, post it, a link to it. But thank you so many, so many people for tuning into this show. It's been a fun one. This has been another production of Guttercat Studios. All conversations with Crazy Carl are for educational purposes only. You should never take financial advice from a cat or anybody really, especially financial advisors. Take control of your own financial future and do your own research always. That's all for now. Until next time, we'll see you in the metaverse.